Hey, Tourpreneurs, it's Mitch Bach. And just a quick note before we begin today's episode, Tourpreneur is currently sponsored by Google. We're thankful for their support of our community, and we are offering with them a completely free course helping you unlock the power and potential of Google's Things to Do program, which is specifically helping tour operators add their tours to Google in new ways that gives you new exposure and more direct bookings. To learn more, go to tourpreneur.com slash Google. And as always, show notes, more resources, links to our newsletter, our business coaching community, and so much more are available on tourpreneur.com. Now to the episode. everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tourpreneur. I'm Mitch Bach, and today my guest is Corey Schneider of the New York Adventure Club. I wanted to talk to Corey because he has built a business that has survived and thrived through COVID and now into our sort of in-person world once again, but with a really different angle than you normally see on your regular kind of walking tour company in a big city like New York. I'm excited to dive in. So welcome, Corey, to Tourpreneur. All right. Thank you for the invitation, Mitch. Appreciate it. Corey, let's just start with kind of the basic outline of what your business is, the New York Adventure Club. Who is your customer and what are you selling to them? (laughs) Well, before COVID, I would say we organize unique experiences in and around the city geared for locals. Now that that's expanded, of course, with, with virtual, but it's still focusing on, on niche experiences and, and topics for an international audience. So let's break down that, that word local. So you started this before pandemic, before it was fashionable to market to locals. That's right. Yeah, this started officially in 2014. But before that, you know, I was personally running around the city trying to trying to explore the city, find myself, find what I was interested in. And I was just kind of pursuing my passions on weekends, going to historic sites or interesting neighborhoods and doing this, the, the research to, to figure out what was out there and what was interesting. I, wa- I wanted to be an expert in something, but didn't, didn't know what that, wa- what that would be. And I just figured, I, and I hoped that this journey would kind of uh, help me find my way. Interesting. So it was sort of born out of your own desire to sort of explore New York and figure out what was grabbing you about yeah. the city. What not born what out grabbed of, you? I'd say, <laughs> you know, just when you, you do the same, you know, when you move to the city, you kind of fall in, into the, into your own bubble and fall into a routine of doing the same things and hang out with the same people and kind of wanted to break out of that. And so once I, you know, kind of discovered these sites, so for example, going to you know, City Island or, you know, going to, you know, these smaller museums around the city that don't get as much as press as the, as the larger ones. And just seeing that New York really had all of these rabbit holes and really understanding and appreciating, you know, the motto that, you know, New York is the greatest city in the world. And, you know, over the last 10 years, I continue to, <laughs> to believe that with, you know, and, you know, there it, it's endless. Even at this point, every week, uh, I'm discovering something new, which is, which is great, which is engaging and, you know, something that other you know, most other cities in the, in the world, you know, you know, just can't compare with the, with the depth. I agree. 
it's not a belief, it's a fact. New York is the best city on earth. And <laughs> yet it, it often ends up being sold as just a list of attractions that you have to try to make it through when you are a visitor to the city. So I really like, you know, I mean, you could spend 14 days just going to observatories and museums and all of the things that are in your little city pass booklet. So I like that you've sort of approached it from the angle of the, of the local who is much more of a connoisseur. What I like even more is any business that is built on kind of an emotional need or a human need, right? And the human need of so many people in our cities is, yeah, we're overworked and we lack our, we lack creativity for how to fill our precious free time. And so I'm wondering when you noticed that your personal boredom cures were potentially a business. Yeah. Uh, so on my birthday in 2013, in December, I uh, created a Facebook group and it was really just aimed and geared for my, you know, maybe 40 or 50 friends who I invited without their uh, consent into this group. It was called New York Adventure Club for non-boring people originally. And all it was, was a, I would curate a weekly newsletter of just interesting things going around the city, you know, more obscure and more, you know, things that would speak, hopefully speak to them. They spoke to me and posted pictures of, of when I would go to some of these, you know, these events and thinking, you know, I would, I would generate a little FOMO and more people would want to come out. And I was always able to get like one or two people out, but I just, you know, I don't know, I was convinced that if I started to do a little more of the work that they would, you know, they would, they would come along. I, I felt that was the blocker. It wasn't an interest issue. It was just, it needed, it was an organization issue. And so, yeah, that group was, uh, you know, Facebook group was uh, for the first two or three months, I was mostly speaking to myself and I figured, okay, you know, what? I have to try, I'll try one, one last, uh, make one last effort to get them out. I'll organize a couple private tours for each week for one month. I'll do all the work. I'll buy the tickets and organize the dates and times. And all they have to do is show up and pay cash. I tried to just make it as simple as possible that, you know, so that they couldn't, you know, <laughs> they couldn't come back with some excuse or et cetera. So, but wary that they would, there would be an excuse. I promoted one of the tours in a local blog, not, not my, not my own Facebook group. And, you know, with the idea that maybe, okay, maybe if I you know wrote a little article about this, one of the sites we're visiting and had a little link to the Facebook group that, you know, maybe I'll get a couple of people to join and I won't lose all my money on this, on this private tour. And when the, you know, that blog went live on, I remember I was at my full-time job on a Friday afternoon, all of a sudden people started flooding into this group asking how to get a ticket. And I then proceeded to Google how to sell tickets online. So very humble beginnings, but it, it was the catalyst that showed that there were other people interested in this urban exploration. And, you know, at that, at that point, there really wasn't a group doing it. There was a, there were a lot of resources out there writing about them, but no one was actually trying to organize people to, to get access into these really fascinating locations. And, and that's kind of when it kind of dawned on me, like, I, you know, let me just, you know, people, people were asking, oh, what, I haven't heard of the New York Adventure Club, you know, in the group. Like, I can't believe I haven't heard of you yet. Uh, I haven't heard of myself either. And so I just kind of just hit the ground running. And, you know, it was a side gig for two years of, you know, trying to organize at least one or two events a week. And, you know, it, and I, I had a good knowledge of what was out there already, foundational knowledge, because I had been doing it for personally just for around a year and a half. And so that's, you know, I started to reach out to all these locations and 
try to you know make the pitch that hey you know the organization for locals and we're you know trying to create these unique experiences and you know started you started initially approached the the easier to easier to approach locations but then as time went on and as the organization grew and there were more people and we had more events it was getting easier to get more coveted experiences and uh, and you know, get open doors that were you know rarely rarely opened interesting yeah i remember i moved to new york city in 2006 and i remember getting onto this super cool listserv email list that every week ran down all of these unique special things and you're right i never went to one of them mainly because i didn't think i was cool enough but it, it was always like that's an extra lift you know you kind of just wanted someone to do the organizing so for you it was the moment you did the organizing and just got the tickets and everything figured out that people started showing up that was catalyst yeah just or just that you know when they came into this facebook group and showed that people were willing to you know willing to go to these places they just needed someone to to kind of help help put it together and that's a theme that we've seen over the last 10 years where you know maybe people you know, locals want to visit a certain location, but they're waiting for us to kind of create that special event to yep. have be their excuse to finally go. And, I see. you know, and my focus a lot, you know, while we do all sorts of events, you know, at least on the tour side, really try to keep it focused, at, you know, what those destinations were that, that would appeal to the audience that was being built. And, you know, fortunately, I, I was my own and am my own target audience, target market. So, you know, using that gut kind of gut feeling to help pick the locations and, and figure out what those what experiences people actually want to go to and and which ones are going to be fulfilling and and really showcase the interesting people and places that you know, represent represent New York. How did it grow then? Was it just word of mouth, that kind of glorious organic Facebook days of just people discovering things? Yeah, up until COVID, it was slow and steady, you know, a couple, maybe a hundred new subscribers, you know, a month and, you know, the number of events slowly increased. So by 2020, the audience was around 15,000 people and we had around 20 events, in-person events a week. And it's a mix of recurring experiences, but then also filtering in, in new events, of course. But it, it's, and it, I should clarify, while it is a, it is a club. It's not a, a private club. So there's there's no fee to be a member per se. You simply just register for the event, find of interest. So they like well, how I always wanted to position New York Adventure Club is a it's sort of a public organization that curates private experiences. Or we curate, curate private experiences for the public. That's always been the sort of focus. Did you ever think of a membership model? Fifteen thousand people wanting to do that could be definitely. Interesting. I, I, it, it makes things a lot more complicated and I, I am the only full-time employee of New York Adventure Club and, and I purposely created it so that it's a very small team and to add a, a proper membership layer would be, you know, then there's expectations that come with being a member, a paid member. And so to, you know, to, to eliminate that, that conflict, I just decided, you know, let's, let's, you know, just base the the revenue model around the the events themselves and you know the more and and just design the organization so that it's really easy to repeat 
events and get and up the frequency of an event if it's if it's more popular than than others. Yeah, that's how I feel about the Entrepreneur Facebook group when somebody DMs me complaining or telling me I should do this. And I'm always like, well, are you getting more than zero cents worth of value out of this group? That's then- right. That's right. Yeah, well, free, free events are, are, are ironically one of the more challenging. You get a, you know, a, a very mixed audience. Of, there's, of course, people who want to be there, uh, but then there's also people who are there just because it's free and, not, mm-hmm. and they might not be as interested in the, whatever that topic is. And then also your RSVP rates are, you know, 50% if you're lucky. And, you know, for even for our free events that we do run, unless it's our happy hour, we, we have a sort of reservation deposit where you do pay up front as if a normal ticket, but then we refund on the back end if you actually show up. And even, even that ensures a more attentive, you know, audience and, and the sort of people that you're looking to get for that sort of event not that i'm trying you know i don't care who comes to the event but i what i do care is that people who do show up are interested in in the event because if the if the audit you know if the guests are a bad fit or there's an issue then guess what we're we might not ever be invited back to that you want intentional attendees (laughs) yes you want Um, asking those great questions and, and reflecting well on on the organization so we're not to COVID yet. We're not talking virtual yet. Just Correct. in the kind of glorious halcyon days of the Adventure Club, what kind of experiences were you deciding merited it being a New York Adventure Club experience? Give us some examples. Yeah, you know, a, a, a whole range. So for example, you know, just picking things out of randomly, we visit a, a small fabric flower maker in the garment district, the last one of its kind. A lot of that has been a lot of these silk and fabric flowers are made overseas now, but there's still one family owned business in the garment district. And, you know, this is on, on the seventh floor of a building. You never see it. You never interact with it. But, you know, when you go up there, you, you know, learn their kind of incredible story and you see the machines that have been operating for, you know, probably over a century. And just to see this, this incredible craft up close, you know, that's a sort of, you know, prime example of you know, showing you something that you definitely wouldn't have, you know, walked by on your own. And, you know, another experience could be, you know, we, we visit a lot of houses of worship. So we have a special behind the scenes tour of Temple Emmanuel, one of the, one of the largest synagogues in the world uh, on Fifth Avenue. And, you know, just to kind of walk in into this sort of awe-inspiring Art Deco you know, masterpiece is just, you know, it, it, it's incredible. It's really breathtaking. It's and. And once again, it's a, it's, it is a site that I'm sure a lot of people have walked by when they walk uh, up or down Fifth Avenue, but to, to go inside, you know, the only people who usually go inside are people who are going in for, for service or, or, or a certain event there. But, you know, this, once again, trying to make it as easy as possible where you can just register and, you know, be taken through the, you know, many rooms and historic sites within, within that location. So. You know, that, that's always a kind of a quintessential. We did have, you know, many years ago, we used to have this incredible behind the scenes of Grand Central. So that's like the, the, the you know, the, the most coveted events are, are you know, the special access, let's say a special access tour of a, of a very well-known location, right? That's, that's the sort of the pinnacle there. And for a couple of years, we had this four hour behind the scenes of Grand Central and you would go 
into M42, the substation that powers Grand Central to underneath the Waldorf track 61 to you know, the operation control room. I mean, it had all the bells and whistles, but, you know, over the years, certain events that pop up, unfortunately might, you know, might disappear. So that's why a lot of people do try to, when they see a new event in our lineup, they want to go because you never know. And it doesn't, that it, it, Grand Central is an, an exception, but let's say it's, we're going inside someone's private apartment, right? And then they, you know, a year or two later, they move. Like we used to do this event at this guy's apartment. He created, he essentially like had an arcade in his apartment. And so we'd have a sort of like arcade game night in his apartment. And, but he moved, you know, a couple of years later and that, that was it. It's never coming back. So there is, you know, that is the risk for some of these smaller locations or sort of more coveted locations that that door might close. And as you can imagine, COVID was a big door closing event that required me to have to restart essentially the whole business on the in-person side and see who was left standing and who was willing to let us in and, or lead neighbor, you know, more neighbor niche neighborhood tours that, that we also have. So. Yeah, I am really, I'm really impressed at sort of the energy this seems like it would take to discover not only these places, but then forge the relationships necessary to gain access. How did you go about doing that? Did you just go up to someone at Grand Central was like, hey, I'm special. Can I go into this incredible hidden gem that every tour guide talks about? Definitely. Yeah. You know, relationships are at the, at the heart of it. And so, you know, it's trying to, you know, meet the people who are making these decisions and, and try to, you know, pitch to them the, the difference with New York Adventure Club versus maybe, you know, quote unquote, standard tour operator and really stressing that, you know, these are the audience here are, are New Yorkers, you know, just like you, you know, it's you being, <laughs> being the place we're trying to visit or the person that, you know, it's trying to give us access and, and trying to pitch it that way because, you know, we weren't going to win on the financial side. Of course, you know, a, a, a location that is used to private events, you know, we, we can get thousands of dollars for a specific event. It's just not realistic. And so there's always, especially with venues or locations that have like private events teams that we really just try to stress that this is an educational tour. And that's what it is. It's not just about going inside because that's that's one thing and that's that's great to have access but you need the the content to back it up you need someone who knows what they're talking about so even you know for all the you know there have been many events that we've almost put together that have of, of incredible locations but if we didn't have that the right person to lead that experience then we probably didn't go forward with it uh, because you really need that content that's the whole that's also half the story so that you could walk away and really appreciate this the story and the history behind you know the site you just visited and to, so that in for in 40 years if you maybe you don't live in new york anymore that you look back and you remember that moment and how it defined your uh, new york experience yeah you're really creating wow moments and the wow moment is the experience of being you know being granted accent access for a moment i remember the time I got drunk with my friend and she had a key to the Gramercy Park uh, park. That's a private park. And we opened it up and we had champagne on a park bench, freezing our butts off at 2 a.m. And it was just like, it was magical, right? I've never been in that park ever since. I don't actually care to go back into it, but I am so happy that I had that moment of access to that park yeah. that one day. Yeah. yeah. When you 
So you're hiring guides as well for all of these experiences or what does that look like? It's a mix. So if, yeah, if it's more of a sort of a neighborhood experience, so let's say we're doing East Village music tour, uh, that will be with, with a guide. If we're visiting, let's say it's a private institution, you know, the tour might will probably be led by a staff member of that uh, institution. So for example, we visit the, the Whitney, uh, Whitney Studio, the original Whitney Studio, which is at the New York Studio School in, in the village. And so that tour, for example, is led by a staff member of, of the school and who will arguably be the most knowledgeable of, of you know, at least the history and then also the school's, school's history. So it's it's a it's it's a hybrid of 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 working with independent guides, but then also working with the you know these institutional leaders, and we also work with authors. So it, it really depends on the what what the topic is. If it's an author who focuses on one subject, then we you know we'll work with them on, on in person events as well. If they're if they're in the New York area, interesting. So let's dive into twenty twenty yeah. and beyond. So you, you lost, like all of us did, access to anything physical. Was it a pivot to virtual and how did that look and how did that go? Yeah, so if, if, I know it's hard to remember those days, but there, there was a, you know, probably two or three weeks of this, you know, where the writing was on the wall, that things were about to, to originally group sizes were limited from and limited to, you know, let's say, a hundred people or two, you know, 200 people. And then every week it seemed to be going down. And initially I thought, okay, I can still run the business because we have most of our events are, you know, whether it's a tour or a social experience, they're usually under 40, but then, you know, then there were, there are caps around there. And, and then, you know, then I was speaking with, with my, I remember speaking with my brother and like, you know, he was like, even if this were, you know, COVID were to go away today, like there's still going to be lag time you know where people won't feel safe and for for a little for a period and kind of made me realize that okay i need to figure out what virtual looks like for new york adventure club because i had never thought about it no one had ever really thought about at least paid ticketed virtual events for their companies it just wasn't it wasn't a thing there wasn't the network adoption by everyone right to to use this we weren't into it and then sound appealing oh i wanted to become a tour guide into my my webcam i know right and well it's funny I, I i had zoom on my computer but i only used it to i used it just as for like calls international calls with with one other colleague like i didn't even think about to use it for video you know so these are sort of novel concepts but yeah so i had to think about what what virtual looked like and you know like another phenomenon was that my calendar was being completely wiped out like there was there were no events there were no meetings which was nice for a little bit as a, you know, as a, as a small business owner to not <laughs> to see, see an empty calendar. It was nice for a little bit, but that I had nothing, nothing to do. And all the event partners I worked with had nothing to do either. Right. We, we couldn't do any work. And so once I figured out what, you know, what the most convincing type of product would be that people would pay something for, then I turned around and started to talk with everyone I worked with and say, Hey, we have this great in-person event. Let's say it's a tour. How do we adapt this for virtual? Like, what does that look like? And so the lowest hanging fruit, we had started a in-person lecture series that the fall you know, of 2019. So those are the first people I reached out to because that seemed very obvious. Instead of presenting inside a lecture hall, just do it online and you already have the presentation slides. Great. 
then the next step were tour, you know, tours that we had of like a neighborhood tour. Okay, you know, can that can that guide lead a, a virtual lecture of of that topic? And then the more complicated ones were, you know, how do we convert this tea ceremony, Japanese tea ceremony, into a virtual experience? How do we, you know, convert a, a murder mystery event into a virtual into a virtual one? And so once again, had can I there, can oh, I can ahead. I stop you there and ask you that? How do you turn a murder mystery into a a Zoom presentation? We, you know, kind of was like a hybrid of kind of like work like trivia in a way where, (laughs) you know, content was shared via slides and little videos. And then teams would go, would huddle with their virtually to go through the the questions and try to figure out the answers of who killed who. So definitely a different experience, but, you know, it was fun to try completely different events out and just see how they how they stuck. Yeah, I actually really love basically you built a business around your curiosity and a willingness to experiment. You don't seem yeah. too hung up on, oh, is this going to be a really big business model? Like, let's try it. Let's see what sticks. I think we didn't have a choice. You know, I forget the motto of, you know, innovations born from necessity. Uh, there, I, there, I just couldn't do in person. And, and, and because I believe that even if it, yeah, COVID had gone away immediately, there'd still be that lag time. I knew that I, I need, I needed to do something if I wanted to keep the business going. And, and once again, it just like the sort of the Facebook group, the idea with the virtual is not to make a big business. It was just to keep the lights on. Like that was honestly the only thing. And I, I had zero idea how many people would sign up for these events. I, you know, I thought it would just be, you know, maybe 10 or 20, but you know, I think it was a mix of being able to act quickly and work with the event partners and, and they were all on board, which is, I, I, you know, they are the, they are very, as much of the business as I am, because I depend on all, all of these event partners from tour guides to museums to, to help, you know, create the content, you know, or to, and to run the content. So once again, no one had anything to do. So they were, they jumped in and said, Hey, let's try it. And we, and, you know, for the first two, I remember our first event, we had like a hundred people like pay you know people pay and watch and like it blew me away it was it was terrifying i was you know i had come on to like introduce the event and i was like you know i didn't have the the setup that i do now with the ring light so you know my computer was on my stacked on my bed and it was facing a white wall just you know because all the other uh, walls were not good so there's definitely a big learning process but i'd say probably two or three months after that initial webinar is when things just went went crazy. I think it was a mix of that there weren't a lot of players in the virtual uh, event space. I think, you know, we're fortunate to have a lot of content right off the bat. Like the first week of shutdown, we had our first virtual event. And, you know, as the audience sizes started to grow exponentially, then, and I didn't have any in-person events to worry about. I can, you know, I was just focusing all on virtual events. I was, you know, we were all locked inside. So it was like this strange period where I could just work, you know, all the time and definitely six months of that, I, I experienced a, a pretty intense burnout because I was, it was not only working behind the scenes and organizing the events, I realized you need someone to watch the events too. Cause unlike an in-person tour where I trust the guide, I know they're going to do a great job with the virtual, they might be the, they might be a great, I'm sure, probably a great presenter, but if their internet connection goes out, you need someone there who's going to help, you know, keep the keep the show going, keep things professional and, and work with the, uh, the presenter to get back online. So 
you know, I had to figure out how to, how to, how to scale and make it less intensive on me personally, because it was, yeah, it was definitely becoming a lot. So let's take a, let's, let's, let's take a look at sort of the business today. Are you still running virtual? Because a lot of tour operators have just sort of given up and said, well, we're back at it. We're busy again. Where does virtual fit into your landscape today? Yeah, it's, it's a core part of the business. You know, last year, 70% of our events were virtual for, 20, for 2023. So it's, you know, we have up to 15, 10 to 15 virtual events a week still. Now they're not at the numbers that they were in the early, in the golden days, I'll say, in the, you know, the first year and a half, but it's still at a level that is worthwhile for everyone involved. And, you know, the sort of audience, I will say there are certain events that we don't do anymore because that audience has left. So those, that murder mystery audience, they're doing the murder mm -hmm. mysteries again in person, you know, you know those uh, trivia, th that sort of crowd they have left, but the crowd that has stuck around and what comprises the, the kind of core audience of virtual are the, is the lecture crowd. So the, the, the people who enjoyed going to lectures in person enjoy probably more going and watching it virtually because I mean, there's just so many reasons. One, you could do it from your home. Our standard policy is to keep the replay open for one week for most webinars. So, hey, they can't watch that night. They'll just watch a couple of days later. So there's that flexibility. There's the sort of the seemingly one-on-one -on -one experience. Uh, we have a Q and A at the end and, you know, you're only seeing the presenter, at least for our view. So it seems like it's almost like a personalized experience and you know you don't have the you don't and then from the organizer side it's a huge difference you know first for the presentation itself you don't have to worry about any technical or i should say you don't have to worry about someone interrupting you know that phone going off you don't have to worry about capacity of the event security or who's checking people in with virtual you know is you have one person man you know our, we have a moderator for each event and and the presenter and that's all you need from from the back end and then you can have whether it's a hundred people or a thousand, for the most part, it runs the same. So that's the big advantage of virtual. And so a lot of our, all, pretty much all our content, other than there are some exceptions, are more of a lecture style. So through that, you know, we've connected with just incredible educators, whether they're art historians, tour guides, uh, authors who, you know, who maybe, yeah, let's say authors who've you know, written a book on an incredible, incredibly fascinating topic. Some of them have commented they've you know, made more hosting webinars than they have with book sales. And once again, I think it just speaks to the power of an event, of a ticketed event, that it gets people to act and gets people to, to tune in and, and, and really take it seriously. And so the people who do show up and who do pay, even, you know, even if it's not that many, are going to be really into that topic or really want to learn about that topic, whether for entertainment or, you know, for for their own education. What ticketing software are you using to sell these? Uh, so I've been a long time user of uh, Eventbrite, the ticketing platform, and I'm, I'm actually part of a sort of like ambassador program of, of Eventbrite for, la for the last couple of years, just because we're, you know, one of the more active event organizers out there. Mm. But the, the, the webinar platform that we use is called Livestorm. It's a French-based webinar platform. I should say it's also, uh, did I say it? it's web-based? So you don't have to download uh, any program. And you might be asking, why didn't you use Zoom like everyone else during COVID? And in that initial phase where I was figuring out the, what a virtual event would look like, I absolutely considered Zoom, right? We were all using it. But I felt for the sort of events that I was running, 
of a, like a ticketed event. I was probably going to be a like a sort of virtual lecture style. Uh, there were a lot of disadvantages to Zoom. One big one was that the, a private room had a single URL, which meant that sure, I, you know, if I let's say I sold thirty tickets, every each every person would just get the same link, maybe with a password. But then I would have to manage like who's in the room and who paid because there there is integrity behind that ticket. I want I don't want if you're paying, I don't want like twenty other you know people who didn't pay to be in there. That's not fair to you. And what was nice about LiveStorm was that it produced a could set it up so it produces a unique access link for the registrant. So there was some back end kind of you know technical setup to make sure that if, when someone purchases a ticket through our site that it gets, you know, it sends them the webinar access link. But once we established that, then for the most part, you know, it, it ensured ticket integrity. And by using a web-based platform, no one had to download something new and, and then replays saved in the same room, like, and it would show instantly. So there are just a lot of advantages to what, to my particular case, to the adventure club's particular case, but you know, Zoom is a great platform for virtual meetings and other things. It's so it's just about what, what works for you. And, and to this day, we still use LiveStorm. And, you know, we've hosted well over 3,000 virtual events on the platform. And is it perfect? No, there's going to be pros and cons to any platform. But, you know, it's, I feel it's really, it's, it's served its purpose and it's continuing to. When you look at Eventbrite too, I wonder if that because it's an events platform that it has an audience built in of locals looking for things to do that's different than, you know, people looking for tours specifically in different locations online. Yeah, they've really pivoted probably a year or two ago to really being a, a powerhouse when it comes to a search engine for local events. And they're putting mm -hmm. a lot of time and effort into that. And we are seeing the results of that, of, you know, a, you know, a, a noticeable percentage of people who are purchasing tickets for our events are doing so through Eventbrite products. So, you know, that's, that's, you know, at the end of the day, right. We all want to sell more tickets. We all want more people to attend our events. Yeah. It's doing marketing for you. It's, it's providing discoverability. That's so important. And most booking software platforms in general for tour operators don't do that. They, you need to then connect to Viator or connect to, or yeah, Facebook or whatever. I would love to. I would love to, you know, if I could connect to a Viator and stuff, but the, the issue is the, is the management of that. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there's no way to feed all of these, you know, systems into, into one, or at least through, you know, Eventbrite. So that if someone purchases a ticket in one place, it, it's taking away from the central location. And like the, you know, I, I tried that, the route of like, yeah, creating events in the past of like on specific platforms. And we had a part, you know, we were part of the Airbnb experiences rollout and the, you know, I don't know, 2016, 2017, but you know, it just, it was just too much to, as an or as an organizer, maybe, you know, as a, a specific, if you were the tour guide, that it could be a different situation, but it was just too much. I, you know, I've I, I decided to really focus on, on, on sources that I can just drive to one location and make it simple. I think that's such a valuable business lesson in general, which is just keep it simple and it sounds like you weren't afraid to say no to other opportunities or sales channels or potential you know revenue revenue additions because you just wanted to stick to something that feels manageable and doable and and do it really really well that's such an important lesson uh, just... when 
When you do think though about customer acquisition, are you just still riding that kind of word of mouth, Eventbrite discoverability wave, or are you doing active advertising campaigns or social media, anything like that? Yeah, so of course there's still the grassroots and because my philosophy has always been the more events that you create, the more engagement you create, which increases that word of mouth. And with virtual, it's able to scale that because now instead of an event, you can only have 15 people, you can have unlimited. But we are, we do have several paid Facebook ad campaigns going on that, you know, maybe promote our in-person events or our virtual events. And Facebook has been, yeah, that's, that's a, that's another podcast of <laughs> trials and tribulations of Facebook. But to give you the, this, the mini story arc, they, they probably around 2020, 2019, they, they went all in on events and really want to, you know, make it a great experience. And initially it was great organically, especially in early COVID, some of these Facebook pages that I would just you know, we post through our account, like well, some of them would reach literally a million, over a million people. It was incredible without having to pay for it, which is great. Then Facebook wanted to, decided to be a ticketing platform in themselves. And so you, in order to like have, in order to pay through Facebook, now you had to use their service. So that, that was a huge killer. And then they changed their algorithm and any, any free events were not, you know, didn't really go anywhere. Then, you know, we started using paid ads and initially it was like kind of a bust. It wasn't until recently that, that success we've seen with, they've rolled out with this advantage plus tool, which is like, you know, just like a better market, you know, remarketing marketing tool. And so far we, you know, for the sort of select events that we've used it for, have seen, have seen enough promising results to really increase the ad budget. So we're spending a certain amount per day on all these different buckets and, you know, and making sure that our ROI is, of course, you know, at least at, at least two X, otherwise it might not, might not be worth it. There's but a it, lot of R for your R, yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but it, always looking for those sources and, and those other maybe communities of people that our events will be, you know, will appeal to, because that, that, that's, that's always been a, a big driver is finding those, tapping into those other communities that. You know, if they knew that your events existed, you would, you know, gain a whole new population of, of people and, and, you know, who hopefully will on their own want to, you know, do more events with you. Who, speaking of communities, who are those individuals still taking your virtual tours or lectures or experiences? Yeah. So I'd say it is the lecture, the lecture crowd. It might, you know, skew, skew a bit older Old people, older. Yes, absolutely. But you know, they had to, I, I really commend them because technology is not as intuitive for older demographic as it is for people who grew up with computers. And once again, just like with in-person events, we try to make it as simple as possible on the virtual side so that you purchase a ticket and you get your access link. In a perfect world, everyone would get their access link and there's still friction with technology that is out of our control, unfortunately, but we, we try our best to make it as simple as possible for you know, people who work computers might not come as, you know, as, you know, come in as a, in first, whatever I'm trying to say, it doesn't come intuitively, <laughs> but we, but so, some other events that we do lead that are different demographic virtually, we have a, a whiskey tasting once a month where we send your kits are sent out to uh, people's homes. And so through that, we see a whole range of demographic uh, people signing up. We see families and friends all signing up for it so that they can kind of partake in this shared experience virtually. 
And that's something we'd see per, like when we're doing the murder mysteries and, and those sort of events that, you know, these events are able to bring people together who, who don't live together, but participate in the shared experience. And, you know, because everyone was forced to use Zoom and, and web-based platforms, it's able to bridge the divide uh, between, you know, a generational divide so that that way you, you do have events where, you know, it's the parent and the child who are living in different states able to kind of come together and watch this program. So we know that, you know, that's definitely happening. Uh, we also see people who, you know, maybe they're educators themselves or historians and they're watching a program on, you know, let's say the story of London and they want to, you know, they want to, they want to see, you know, learn some more information or if it's, you know, one of the many Gilded Age events that that would lead. I should, I should, I should clarify or specify that while we host a range of virtual topics, there are certain topics that do better than others. And so the main, the biggest one, the biggest subcategory revolves around the American Gilded Age. So you know, that period, 1870s to 1910s, roughly just a great, great American wealth post-Civil War. And with that wealth came large, fancy houses, you know, drama-filled families and industry titans. And there's just such a fasc fascination around that period. Hence, you know, the, the Gilded Age uh, HBO series that has been you know, very popular. But that community, the community of Gilded Age lovers, precluded the the, the TV TV series. But so you could you'll probably notice a lot of our a lot of events are Gilded Age related, and that's not by. Uh, by accident. Chance. That's really interesting. I mean, I love the idea of actually going out there and seeing which kind of niche groups or, you know, affinity groups based on certain topics that your destination might be really good at sharing yeah. the story of. Are you still basically exclusively centered around New York themed? Is there any thought of expanding to other cities or what's your philosophy on that? Yeah, so the virtual events, while they initially started with a more New York focus, just because that's who we worked with, like New York guides, et cetera, it, it quickly expanded. And so that if you visit our virtual events site, you'll see that, you know, there, there's, there's, of course, some New York centric events, but then there's topics that are, have nothing to do with New York. So how to dine like a Victorian, you know, architecture of 50 towns in 50 states or something about Hitchcock. So you know, the topics range and, and that's been the sort of international expansion. And we work with presenters both here and abroad. So we have French presenters, Dutch, you know, from the UK. So able to really have this great diversity when it comes to, comes to content, you know, fa famous archeologists who are in the field and, you know, showing, talking about the, you know, the history of King Tut, but then also showing their work in Egypt. So it's really, you know, virtual really opens the doors for some really interesting topics, experiences, and all and connecting with people that you would never have connected with for in-person. For in-person, yes. Bef before COVID, the, the goal, the idea was that there could be an adventure club in every, every city, but the, you know, the, the, fi the financials didn't, weren't there to really support that idea. When COVID, you know, happened and then our, and then our virtual event numbers started to really sort of skyrocket, there was the you know, I did think about that. I was like, oh, this is interesting. This could be like the sort of the way that the business of Adventure Club is the virtual. And then, the, you know, it allows us to have in-person communities in other cities, more of like a loss leader or just you know, that, that sort of approach. But I said, okay, let, let's wait until the vaccines come out because there's talk of the vaccines. And it's like, if the vaccines come out and the volume is still, all, you know, in the stratosphere, then, then yeah, let's 
give it a shot. But if it doesn't, let's not do that. And so as you can imagine, when the vaccines came out pretty quickly, those those average, you know, those monthly numbers started to really come down. Changed. So change. And, you know, I'm glad I didn't make any kind of drastic sudden moves because it would have put me in a very stressful position. And, you know, while it has come down significantly from those larger days, I didn't, ex- I didn't expand too early. You know, I didn't try to gr- I didn't grow my team. So, you know, not there's, it was a great period. I appreciated it. And, but now, you know, just charting forward where in, for in-person events, we're going to stick to the, the New York area for the, for the meantime. But we are, you know, we, we are partnering with some op- other tour operators or other operators that do go a little farther out. So for example, partnering with a, an owner of a, of a private Pullman car, and it's, they're going to do a, a solar uh, eclipse event where they're going to go from New York to, to Niagara Falls during the solar eclipse in April and on a, you know, this vintage, uh, sort of 1950s car. And so, you know, that's, that's great. Cause you know, essentially pass them off to the, the train conductors and they, they get to take this multi-day trip, you know, back, back and forth between Niagara Falls. So those are the sort of partnerships. And we work with another operator who does like ski trips and apple picking and stuff. And I, early in the early days, I used to organize charter, these tr- sort of charter bus experiences. But for anyone who organizes charter bus experiences, if you don't fill the bus, you lose a lot of money. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, yeah. I experienced that firsthand, right? I organized what I thought were these great, you know, New York brewery. I had a New York brewery trip up the Hudson and one of like in the Bronx used to have multiple breweries. And so what a great idea, right? Have a bus trip where you go, you know, go to different breweries. And, you know, after having a bus for 50 with only five people on it, that's when, you know, it's probably uh, not meant to be. <laughs> so I part, I'll partner with other people who focus specifically on that. Yeah. And those bus prices have only tripled since then. I'm sure. Corey, just to wrap up, this has been fascinating. And I think a fantastically fruitful line of thinking for tour operators who are looking at all the different ways that they can connect with their locale and also locals. What, what has helped you along the way as a business owner? What resources or people or books or anything? What, what, what's been a guide for you? Well, just to, you know, plug, plug Eventbrite again, they've done a lot of work recently. And what I was part of was this creator collective essentially all of these resources for event organizers uh, from, you know, articles on kind of best practices to interviews with different people, you know, just like your, your series. So, you know, they're trying to position themselves as a, as a hub for, you know, for event organizers and, and operators who, you know, want to maybe expand their, their business or just see what's out there and, and get, and get some ideas. I think that could be a great, a great resource and probably a quicker one, right? Like, so it's something that I probably would have, have, you know, dove into if, if it existed when I was, you know, building my business, I think just through my business, it's been a slow and steady rise. So I've had the, because I've had the luxury of time, I've been able to, you know, uh, you know, learn through trial and error. So, you know, those events that I ran that I thought were, would be great. And then they didn't, they weren't great or they weren't marketed well, like, okay, how can I, adjust that. So it's a little more like learning on the, learning on the fly. And the, you know, and of course the, the people I work with, the other event partners are, you know, 
are people I, I listen very closely to about what sort of events that work for them or, you know, what they're trying to achieve. At the end of the day, you want it to be a win-win situation. So, you know, whether that's me working with a private institution or if it's a tour operator working with a pri you know, a private group, really just figuring out what exactly they want. I think that's like half the battle and then, and then being able to, you know, just kind of present them options. As far as resources, like for my own sake, for finding these hidden gems, it's, you know, I'm reading all of these different local publications. I'm signed up with all these newsletters, so like the skint, for example, or, you know, nonsense NYC or nonsense. Uh, that's, that's the one I was uh, on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, obviously there's time out. Facebook used to be the gold standard. They, this is back to our story of Facebook used to be great for events. I, I, I left out the part where they just abandoned it because it didn't make billions of dollars. And so it's worse off than it was before. But searching for, for upcoming events was the, was the best. You could just, you could filter. Everyone was using Facebook events. I think we talked about this even earlier. And unfortunately, that has you know, splintered. So it's, once again, yeah, things are coming and going. So you have to always keep your, keep your eye out. But follow, you know, for me, it's like following those local sort of publications. And, and word of mouth is huge. Like, you know, Tapping into your community is the best way to learn about new play, new experiences and to have that introduction. You know, even this week, you know, someone introduced me to one or two new potential event partners and maybe on the, or the virtual side or the in-person. So, you know, as you grow your community, if you are, you know, if you're going for public events that, you know, if, if you're focusing on the event, which should be the most important part and, and making sure it's a great experience that the people who go on it will be encouraged to help you out or to connect you with, with others who will open more doors. And so I, I think that's just so important to keep, I think, keep an open mind and, and just really focus on the, on what you're providing. Is it really, you know, the best it can be? I, I think a lot of, you know, unfortunately, well, some, you know, operators, you know, maybe more geared for tourists might just think about, oh, I just need to get them in and out or, you know, make it quick, but you know, you, at the end of the day, you really want to make sure it's a lasting experience so that, you know, there's, you know, you, you gain fans uh, along the way. I love it. Fantastic words of advice, fantastic insights, and a great way to end. So, Corey, thank you so much for taking your time to hey, share your so insights much. with the Tourpreneur community. It's great to chat with you. Can't, can't wait to uh, read up on your or listen to your next podcast. And that's today's episode. If you need show notes from today's conversation, make sure you go to tourpreneur.com and there you'll also find so much more, including our free course on Google, things to do leading to more direct bookings and more exposure on Google, available again at tourpreneur.com slash Google.